This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan McCurgy, the host of New Books in Law. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Susan Byrne about her new work, Law and History in Cervantes' Don Quixote. Professor Byrne is an Associate Professor of Spanish and Director of Undergraduate Studies for Spanish at Yale University. Professor Byrne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became attracted to the study of Spanish literature. I was born in New Jersey. I was born into a large family. We're seven siblings in total. And I completed my undergraduate studies at Hunter College in New York City in 1996. And following that, I went directly to the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is also in New York City. My particular attraction to Spanish literature, I think, well, it started with the language that I studied when I was in high school. So it was the only material that I opted to study more than I needed to study for requirements. It was something that attracted me to it. When I went back to college to finish my undergraduate degree, I had at that point traveled fairly extensively in Mexico and used the language for a number of years. When I went back, I decided that I wanted to study archaeology and anthropology, and then I started taking more Spanish literature courses and pretty much was hooked, as they say. So I ended up with an undergraduate double major in anthropology and Spanish literature and then went straight to the doctoral program at the Graduate Center for Spanish Literature. Fantastic. Um, Could you tell us now how you came to write your current book, Law and History in Cervantes' Don Quixote. It started with a question in a class. I was taking a class on the Quixote as a graduate student, and the professor, his name was Isaias Lerner. He was a, a master of the close reading technique of literary works. And he questioned, there's a scene in the first part of the novel and it's in the third chapter, and where the innkeeper has promised Don Quixote that he will knight him, he will make him a knight, dub him a knight. And he says, I can't do it in the chapel, though, because I have the chapel knocked down so as to rebuild it. So as we came to that passage in the text, Lerner said he wasn't sure how easy it would have been to knock down a chapel in the time, and he asked us that question just as a throw out, this is something that might be worthy of looking at. 
So at the time, I was working another project that involved the law books, my first work with uh, legal detail in literary texts was a detail in the Spanish epic called the Cantar de Miusid. It's a very early Spanish epic. And there's a, a child, a, a little girl who's nine years old, and she transgresses the king's dicta that no one revealed to the hero what the king's letter has said that has exiled the hero. She does tell him anyway, and the question, he, her voice had always been presented as a uh, a, a very empathetic voice and uh, isn't this an endearing type of voice to have in the poem and the poet really did a nice thing on having this voice be the one that reveals the details but I went looking in the legal books and I found that there were there was a specific reason for her being nine because were she nine and a half she would have been liable for the penalties prescribed under the law so he was protecting her at the same time and forming his audience. And while I was working on that, this question came up in the class about the Quixote, about knocking down a chapel. So I did look along as I was in those historical legal codes, and I found the information, and it's true, it's not as easy as it might sound. And the innkeeper in that particular scene had already been described by the narrative voice in the novel as someone who had multiple crimes and had been, uh, there's an ironic use of been in front of all the audiences and tribunals in various parts of Spain. So this was just one more crime to add to that list. You can't just knock down a chapel because there are laws specifically about it. So I found that information, but then at the time I was working on my doctoral dissertation, which dealt with a different subject matter. So I went back to it later because someone posted a call for papers for a professional conference and the title of the table they were proposing was Cervantine Architectures and I thought architecture, I can do a literal architecture. What um, what mostly they were probably looking for would be the interior architecture of the text in that kind of sense but I proposed the paper and it was accepted and that began the the search for what else is in this book that has to do with legal detail. And when I started looking, I as I was preparing this paper, I just found so much that I was overwhelmed. They there are so, there's so much language in the text in the Quixote that relates to legal matters. There are testimonies, there are cases, there are witnesses, there are descriptions of what's a crime and what's not a crime. People debate whether or not the the protagonist is insane. All of it ties into debates that were going on about legal matters in Spain and sometimes just in a small word sense into which word should be used to describe a certain crime. So I found all of that and this was while I was preparing the paper, and I presented the paper on just the chapel that had been knocked down and then expanded it into a book. And that took another couple of years, but that is the way it came about. Could we give our listeners a short description of Don Quixote, when it was written, who are the main characters, and an attempt at the basic plot? Okay. <laughs> I know it's a very long, involved work. 
there's there's a funny thing when I first taught this work I gave I knew the students would be overwhelmed and so I said each of you is only going to look for one particular theme in every day's write readings and they ended up seeing how everything wove together but it is a, a complex work um, the the specifics of exactly when it was written literally written are things is something we don't know but we know when it was published and it was published in 1605 the first part and then a second part was published in 1615. The, the basic structure of it is there are two main characters. The protagonist, Don Quixote, he's the first one. And for the first eight chapters of the 1605 first part, he's the only main character. He has read so many books of knight errantry that he has decided to go out and turn himself into a knight errant. He goes out to fix the wrongs of the world, to Torts right, and after the first eight chapters, actually it's before the end of the first eight chapters, he has to go home to get certain things that he didn't have after the third chapter when he is knighted. So he goes home and then he finds a, a sword swordsman. It's not a swordsman; it's more his shield bearer. Literal translation from Escudero, and that's Sancho Panza. It's a squire. It's a small. Uh, a small town, and this is a neighbor of his. So he convinces his to come, him to come out, Sancho, and be his shield bearer, Escudero. And that's the basic plot. These two go out into the world. Don Quixote, as the protagonist, finds things that he sees are wrongs done, and he tries to right them. Frequently, writing them just leads to chaos and havoc. And Sancho is the sidekick in general terms, who always points out the pragmatic detail along the way. And basically that's it. I mean, there are multiple messages in the text. It's been tied into the idea that the link to, to law is obvious in it. It's been tied into justice for a long time, and it has been studied in that way um, for quite a long time. At the end of the 19th century, jurists were already looking at the literary, what we today call literary texts from early modern Spain, and they were saying there are a lot of details in here that look like legal details. And then further jurists studies led to conferences on let's look at what Cervantes does with law in this novel. And the particular take of the jurists, I found it very interesting because they judged as many literary scholars were through will do what the what the character does rather than what the author's message is by having the character do those things very interesting um could you provide us with some background about mos italicus and mos gallicus uh and explain how don quixote is a literary realization of mos hispanicus Okay, um, the, the mos italicus is a term used to, de to describe the Italian way of approaching law, and it dates to the 14th century. In the 11th and 12th centuries, jurists at Bologna started recovering classical legal codes, most importantly those of Justinian, the Roman Emperor Justinian. This is the beginning of, in literal terms, you can call this the literal renaissance. This is the, the rebirth of 
old documents. So the Italian jurists, as they found these codes and debated them, they they found them compatible with their own image and custom. They knew they had to adapt them, but they incorporated them into their own use and custom. So they accepted those codes as part of their existing law. By the beginning of the, or the middle more of the 16th century, there's another way to look at these, uh, another take on whether or not these old codes should just be incorporated surfaces in the form of a mos gallicus, and this is the French way of approaching the historical codes. The French determined that the old laws could or should only be seen as historical documents and not as operative legal practice, legal instrument for their day. And one of the jurists who did that, the, one of the French jurists, his name was Francois Baudouin, he also wrote about the combined disciplines of law and history. So he was another one of the links followed through uh, the work that I was doing. Now, what happened in Spain is there is no named legal tradition. That's what the most Italicus and the most Gallicus are. They're named legal traditions for ways to approach law codes. There was no Spanish tradition named, but there were jurists, there was a group of jurists at the University of Salamanca in the early 16th century, just before the mid, in the, I'd say the second quarter of the 16th century, and they were looking for a middle ground, but they didn't ever come up with a middle ground on how to do both, most Italicus and most Gallicus, how to look at the history of the codes, but also incorporate them or to a certain extent incorporate them. And the question for all of it is the relevance of old codes in current practice. So this one jurist whose name I found and he ended up having more links to Cervantes than I expected at first, but he was, his name is Gaspara de Baeza, and he thought some of his writings show that the old codes can elucidate current practice to a certain extent. So it's what the past can tell us about the present. It's should we make the past an active part of the present. And I found in Cervantes' Don Quixote uh, a different way to approach that. Uh, you can look at it from the fact of the protagonist who goes out on the readings of old books of knight errantry. It's the past driving our actions in the present, and the protagonist's reading drives his decision to do good in the world. His actions, in turn, impact on others, and they, in turn, become characters in his life. It's the, and this is why I think the novel has always had such a, a, a broad and unending and constantly praise-filled praise reading public, it's because it is human existence. It's man's feats and his foibles. It's, it's epic and tragedy, but there's also some triumph in there. And so it has uh, that approach. It, tell, it talks about the big topics of life, but it talks about them through a character who is uh, a likable and, if not lovable, character in the novel. So he, the, Cervantes puts in his novel debates on all of those same questions. What, what is legal practice and how should it be done? But he does it by enacting it. He doesn't say, here's what legal practice is and here's what should be done. He creates a character who goes out and puts into action 
old legal codes and their prohibitions. And then it gives him a sidekick who does the same thing, but with a pragmatic, uh, common folk, common everyday kind of approach to it. And in that combination, I saw Cervantes creating something that took the debates because if you're gonna if you're gonna resolve debates that you can't resolve a debate in the first place. That's a debate on an ideal of justice. But if you put it into practice, you can see the ramifications. You can see what comes out of it. And that's what Cervantes does in most of his writings. He puts into a character the ideals and the questioning of the ideals. And then other characters take on the other voices. So it reflects reality in, in a broad and deep sense. Great. Um, could you take a moment and place your work in the larger law and literature movement for our listeners? Okay. I think the, uh, the larger law literature movement is larger than then I would be able to comment in, in less than hours and hours and hours and hours. Right. But uh, in, in an overall sense, it's a subdiscipline, law and literature, that straddles the two fields of law and literature. Now, to me, the, the, one of the main points about that is that if we go back to, <clears throat> excuse me, if we go back to the time frame that I study, law and literature were considered almost the same thing. Literature developed out of law. That's how I see it. The, the, the comments on letters in the time frame, they called everything that they did, the, the writers of the time frame, everything was called good letters, buenas letras. So you had good letters that dealt with law, good letters that dealt with history, good letters that were letters of entertainment, etc. And the split in disciplinary uh, spheres was a, a later, it, it, it started at this time frame, I believe, but then it took a longer time for that split to be solidified, codified. So the subdiscipline that has been active over the past 35 years is uh, a reopening of that door into what's the relationship between these two. And it's easy to see that there are relationships between the two fields because they both deal with language in a really crux key way. Language is what convinces in a court. It's dissuasion. It, it tells the story in a way that someone else believes the story. But it also lays down with specificity what the norms of conduct in a society should be. And literature, if you look at it in the post-18th century post-17th century, really, if you look at the French coining of the term belle lettre, that's the 17th century, and that's when the split begins to happen and literature as creative practice becomes something recognized as creative practice as opposed to serious, solid discipline. And the, the subfield of law and literature goes between those two, so jurists will approach the subfield mainly through their take on legal study. And scholars of literature will approach it mainly through their take on literature, which is necessary because no one can know everything. But to a certain extent, in order to, there's been a big push over the past 20 years for interdisciplinary studies. And that's 
part of what this ties into. Interdisciplinarity can be activated in a way in which I look at the other discipline and say it has something to do with mine, but if I take both of these two disciplines and look at them as both based on letters, on words, and meaning of words, and how to read words, and what words, what the effect of words are on life in general, then I'm looking at uh, a combination of the two disciplines. And I think to pra it's not a, a superficial interdisciplinarity, but you have to look at both of them and try to get inside the head as it were, of each discipline in order to combine them. So the field has gone through these uh, permutations and every once in a while, something like every 10 years, somebody will write a here's the status of the question on the field kind of article. Okay. But, yeah. Sorry, I can give you examples of uh, how, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I guess I was going to ask how, uh, now that the interdisciplinary look at the field is, the, it, it's, what's the the way you're supposed to look at the questions and I believe what you're doing in your work. Um, could you address some of the layers of legal commentary that you've been able to look at because you have this interdisciplinary focus? Okay. Well, the first thing that I did in order to understand the laws, I, I don't have uh, a legal mind as a trained legal mind in the 20th or 21st centuries. What I did was I went back to Spain's early legal codes because those were the ones that would inform the time frame I was working on. And when you look at those, you see the story of law. You see law developing as a field. Uh, the way the, the laws were written, it, it comes down to here's something that happened, here's what we decided to do about it, and this is what should be done about it in future. So it's the creation of precedent in a legal sense. And the, the laws that had problems would frequently be the laws that were commented in the in Cervantes' creative work. So he tilts at windmills. It's an iconic image, the character tilting at windmills. There were specific laws on the books that said you cannot break a mill. And the word used for break had dozens of meanings, different meanings, by the time it got to Cervantes' day. And also the mills themselves had changed from paddle wheel, old paddle wheel style mills into the big windmills. So you have to imagine a character being sent out to attack a windmill. And what he's actually doing is also literally breaking a law on the books that is an archaic law that doesn't fit with the actual reality of the time. So that's how the, the combined points come into a text. Okay. Um, could you also explain um, why Cervantes uh, viewed his work as a history uh, and how this impacts how we should view his legal commentary? Well, history in the time frame was also another highly debated material. Um, most of the disciplines that we today look at as disciplines, in the 16th century they were breaking out of the scholastic parameters. So <clears throat> history was seen during the late Middle Ages as a way to learn, a way to teach grammar and rhetoric. And the writing of history was frequently done 
as it is today for propagandistic purposes. So you can write a history that tells the truth, but there's a point when you have to say, this is what I'm going to write. You can't write every detail from every perspective. History itself was a field that was debated for first, earlier, 15th to 16th century, the two general approaches of how does one write history? Does one go into the archives or does one have to be an eyewitness in order to write history? So one of the people that, one of the historians that I tied into Cervantes' work, he's an Italian historian named Paolo Giovio, and his particular writing, he would combine various eyewitness accounts. People would have experienced a certain battle and they would he was in Rome and they would come back to Rome and he would interview them all and then he would combine those those eyewitness approaches into how he wrote history. So you get a multiplicity of voices and that multiplicity of voices seems to tell a truth but sometimes you can't really tell which I is talking when the I is talking. Then the same jurist who I spoke about a little earlier, Gaspar de Baeza, he translated Jovio's histories and other works that Jovio had written in the middle of 1568, his uh, publication of the Elogia, and 1562, the publication, 1566, the publication of the histories. So when you get a translator translating something that already has the multiple voices filtered through a one voice, and then the translator adds in some of his own commentary, you end up with uh, a whole series, a leveling of narrative voices. And that is what ends up happening in Cervantes with the novel. He uses both of the, the forms debated in historical circles. He uses the archival after the first section of the first part of the novel the narrative voice stops in the middle and says, I'm in the middle of a battle. Literally, they're about, they're about to, <laughs> swords are about to come down at each other. And the narrative voice stops and says, and you know what? That's all I've got. The, the story stops there. I don't have any more. So all of a sudden, he pretends that this is something, someone else's story that they're telling. And then he goes out looking and he says, oh, they must be in the archives. The story of this, of this Don Quixote, they must be in the archives. So, the narrator goes out and looks for the archives and he can't find it, but then he finds in a marketplace somebody laughing as they read some papers written in Arabic. And it turns out he asks the person, what are you reading? What are you laughing about? And the guy tells him. And what he tells him is the story of Don Quixote. So then he takes those papers and he has somebody translate them. And after that, Cervantes introduces all kinds of doubts about the original author, who is put forward as a Moor who is not to be trusted, and then the translator who was supposed to translate faithfully every word and promised that he wouldn't change anything, and then all the characters. So everyone doubts those multiple voices. This is uh, history as it was known in the time frame because the multiple voices would debate in texts with each other. No, that historian has it all wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And so Cervantes puts in one novel the same facet, the same element of all of these narrative voices and characters' voices that debate the truth of the history that they are telling and living at the same time. And that, when you get to the eyewitness, it's like one teeny little piece to add on the eyewitness. 
each of the two main characters sees things. They literally see things differently. So how can you trust an eyewitness when an eyewitness thinks that a windmill is a giant? Right. So, you know, it, it begs the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the picaresque Lazarillo um, and its literal use of legal sources um, and Cervantes' this incorporation of this method in Don Quixote? The picaresque, the first picaresque novel that we have, the title is Lazarillo, Lazarillo de Tormes, and it's a, a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of story. Lazarillo is born into a very poor family and his mother at one point sells him, basically turns him over to a blind man who is going to make sure he finds a way to make a living, etc., etc. And the the key legal pieces behind it that I found are a, a series of pragmatics that were issued by the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabel. The first one, so I have to finish the story before the pragmatics make sense, sorry. So Lazarillo uh, goes from one master to another throughout his life. He finds job after job, and he ends up in a situation where he says that he is completely content. And that situation is that he is married to a woman who cuckolds him by sleeping with the archpriest who lives next door, who was her boss before he came along, and apparently by whom she has already given birth three times before he came along. But he says that he's completely content and he doesn't believe what those voices in in the town, what those other gossipy voices tell him about or say about his wife and her relationship with the archpriest who lives next door. So if you look at the series of pragmatics, you, you see there's one voice in the pragmatics that doesn't get its voice. And what I think the author of the Lazarillo did was give voice to that unnamed party or hidden party in the pragmatics. The way the pragmatics work, the first one was issued, and it says, we have learned that the magistrates are going into the priest's home looking for women of ill repute. They call them mancebas publicas. So we hear that these priests are doing this, and we want that to stop because it's not. We, these magistrates are doing this to the priests, and we want that to stop. And then the second pragmatic says, we only allow a woman to be charged with being a public woman if her husband himself brings the charges. And there are two later pragmatics that follow up in the sense that the, the third one says, okay, now we've learned that these priests are having women of ill repute, are, are holding these women of ill repute, or are having relationships with these women of ill repute in their homes. And so now we're going to allow the magistrates to go in and search again. And then the following one, the last one, is the key that describes the story of Lazarillo. The last one says, now we're really outraged. These are the voices of the king and queen. Now we're really outraged because we hear that these priests are marrying their women of ill repute to another servant in their same home so that they can continue to have these relationships. So the only person who can bring the charge is the husband. The women are now in the priest's homes, but safely protected under cover of marriage. And the only 
person's voice that you don't hear in that series of pragmatics is that of the cuckolded husband who is living in the home. So to me, that's a, a key to uh, a solid reading of the Lazarillo, that that particular voice was given a voice. And the Lazarillo was published. It was, uh, it's, it's recognized as a polemical work in the time frame. It was published in 1554, but it came out at first we thought three, but now they've found a fourth. So there are four different anonymous editions published in the same year in four different towns and cities so that no one could trace the owner because it's a very, it's a, a fairly polemical social critique that's in there of various practices and particularly of uh, some of the members of the clergy. So the Lazarillo is the first picaresque. It's prohibited when the first lists of prohibited books come out in 1559, and it's not allowed to be published. It's published in a little while later in a castigated version. There are sequels written to it. But then in 1599, someone writes another picaresque novel, and this one is a quite different. Picar Lazarillo is a charming picaresque. This 1599 novel is the one that uh, gave the word picaresque to this type of novel, although the Lazarillo is the first. This one is the Guzman de Alfarache, and it's by uh, Mateo Aleman, is the name of the author. It, it tells the same story, and it solidifies the genre in that this, the way you write a picaresque is you are a narrative voice in the I form, the yo, I, I am telling this story, it is my story, you're writing an autobiography, and here is what happened to me as I went through this series of masters, and here's how I learned what I learned. So the, the picaresque will continue. There's a third one that comes out. It's called the Buscon, but that doesn't come out. It's Francisco de Quevedo, and that doesn't come out until after Cervantes has published the Don Quixote, both parts of that. So what Cervantes does, there, there have been attempts to look at Don Quixote in the sense of picaresque and what Cervantes does with the picaresque. There is, the narrative voice is not an, an I voice, and so it doesn't work. He doesn't go through a series of owners, and so that doesn't work. But what Cervantes does is he incorporates a character who is writing his own picaresque novel. And it comes in the middle of an episode that I have found multiple resonances of legal matters in this episode. It's an episode called the episode of the galley slaves. There's a, a chain, chained group of men on their way to the galleys. The uh, the galleys, Philip II needed, King Philip II of Spain, needed more people in the galleys rowing, in the, in the boats rowing the galleys. So he changed various punishments for various crimes to time spent in the galleys, which frequently time spent in the galleys would be a kind of a death sentence. So there's a chained group of men coming down the road towards Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. And Don Quixote looks and he says, what's this coming towards us? And Sancho Panza says, that's a group of chained men, persons forced by the king. So Don Quixote says, how can people be forced by the king? This seems incredible. The king shouldn't be making force against anyone. And then he says that his goal for this particular episode is to undo forcings. So for me, key to a reading of the episode is that the goal of Don Quixote from the beginning of the novel throughout both parts is to undo wrongs, to undo torts. 
But here he changes it to forcings, and that had a specific legal resonance. So the the legal resonance is that the king was supposed to undo forcings unjustly imposed by an ecclesiastical court. And the ecclesiastical court would have said that forcing was tied to denying an appeal. So what Cervantes does in this episode is his protagonist, Don Quixote, gives an appeal to each of these men who are chained on the on the path. The particular person who's on the chain on the path, who is described as the worst of the criminals there. His name is Gines de Pasamonte. And he says during this episode when he's given his chance for his appeal that he is writing his own picaresque novel. He's writing his own novel. And he, the, the magistrates who are with the uh, prisoners, they're the ones who say he has his own picaresque novel, and so Don Quixote questions him about it, and the, the punchline of the questioning about the picaresque is Don Quixote asks him, have you finished it yet? And Jimenez de Pasamonte responds, how can it be finished? My life isn't over yet. And so it's a, a comment on what writing is and how writing can't be. You can't write your own story and if you write your own story, then your life isn't over, so there's still more to it to go. And then that same character resurfaces in the second part, fleeing from justice, and he's a um, a puppeteer with a tra his own traveling puppet show. So he shows up in the second part in a different uh, context. Um, could you... Uh, you've... You alluded to this a couple times, but could you um, give a broader background of the jurisprudential environment of Spain uh, in the 7th to 16th centuries uh, and tell us how Cervantes turned legal confusion into a narrative? Okay. Yeah, you're right. I have seeded in some of those, haven't I? Um, the, the specific... The first legal code that we have in Spain is the, it, in Spanish it's called the Fuero Jusco. It was written as the Liber Judicorum in the 7th, 7th century. So it's the judge's book. It's the Visigoth judge's book. And it was translated to Spanish in the 13th century as the Fuero Jusco. So in Spain during this time frame from the 7th through the end of the 15th century, it's the time we call the Reconquest. The, Inhabitants of the peninsula, the, the Arabs, the Moors, had come from Africa in the 7th century. There are various um, tellings. The, the most classic telling is that the last Visigoth king, Rodrigo, who actually wasn't the last one because his brother was, but the way the stories go, and that ties into history, the um, last Visigoth king lost Spain to the Moors. So the Christians were forced up to the top of the Spanish Peninsula. And then for seven centuries, they proceeded down trying to retake certain towns, all of the towns and cities and all of the land. And they didn't finish until the very last, 1492, was the year when Ferdinand and Isabel finally got into the last, which was Granada. So as they're going down, each of the towns is given its own founding charter, and that founding charter it consists of laws, how to govern this town, and those are called fueros, they're small law books. 
those local fueros in the 13th century, in the middle of this reconquest, Alphonse X, he's known as Alphonse the Wise, he promulgated the, well, he and his predecessor, Ferdinand III, they promulgated two different books called the Fuero Real and the Siete Partidas. So that's the royal law book and the seven books. And both of those, what they were doing was in what I commented earlier about the, uh, I commented on the specifics of the legal renaissance of Justinian's law books. So that was happening in the 11th and 12th century in Italy. In the 13th century, Alphonse and Ferdinand, they try to combine, they try to do the Mositalicus, they follow through on that idea of Mositalicus, and they try to combine Roman law, statute law, and make it active in Spain. But the problem was that the local fueros gave much more power to the nobles and privileges to the nobles. So the nobles resisted this imposition of Roman law, codified law. And what happened out of the debates on it was that there was an order of consultation proposed. So first, if a case needed to be heard, the local fueros would apply. Then it would be whichever overriding collection was operative in a given moment because the collections would be rewritten every once in a while. So in 1348, you have one that's called the Ordenamiento de Alcalá. In 1505, you have the Leyes de Toro. And in 1567, you have the Recopilación. Only after all of those those books had been applied to the case or the case had been seen in the light of those books could, and only in the 16th century, beginning, end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th, it was the Catholic monarchs again who actually promulgated the Siete Partidas as law. That was the final appeals court law book. So that's the way it was supposed to work, but it didn't actually work that way in practice. The Siete Partidas were one of those, they are one of those books that have multitude of detail, and the detail makes it very easy to learn law and legal practice. So jurists, upcoming jurists, would be trained with these siete partidas, but the the details were attractive to them. But as a side issue, there was no printing press until the middle of the 15th century, and so the copies of the siete partidas and all of these other codes that would circulate, they could they were, could be changed by people along the way, and as it turns out, they were. So once the printing press comes in the middle of the 15th century, then you have multiple copies of all of these different law collections. And they're all out there. And it depends on which judge you go to, which court you go to, which book would be operative. And some books were more favorable to certain takes on a certain law than others were. So if I brought a case against someone in Madrid and I said, I'm bringing this case against you here, you could appeal that case to a different court that used a different law book. And so this this kind of practice of the law has been detailed by an historian named Richard Kagan. He's at Johns Hopkins University. And he has a book called uh, Lawsuits and Litigants in Castile from 1500 to 1800. So he described the society as a litigious society. Everybody was suing each other. And when I looked I saw he's absolutely right about that, but also the law books themselves 
it's, it's impossible to know what the law is. And so then by the end of the 16th century, there are multiple complaints about that very situation. The lawyers say, you can't even buy all these books, never mind, read them all. And they contradict each other. And laws that are in one collection will disappear in the next collection, but then resurface in another collection. And when you add that to the practice of law, which is already going to have to be, somebody has to make a determination on something, you get a, a picture of how the legal climate, what the legal climate was by the end of the 16th century in Spain. So it wasn't a surprise to me that Cervantes would be commenting on those particular practices because the environment was pretty much over the top. The the kings would also issue proclamations that they called pragmaticas. And it's those, the, the pragmaticas had the specific purpose of regulating human behavior in a situation. So they would say, okay, everybody is wearing all of this clothing that has all of this gold thread in it. And we don't have enough money in the in the kingdom for all of these people to be wearing all of these pieces of clothing with gold thread in them, so we prohibit clothing with gold thread. And then five years later, they'll come out and they'll say again, and you know, like we said the last time, nobody's supposed to be wearing this stuff, and they still were wearing it. So the, the general upheaval and the intent, because from the end of the 15th century forward, what's happening is that with the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabel in the 15th century, the two big kingdoms of Castile and Aragon combined, and then you have what we today call Spain in the sense of all of the regions, and the kings from that point forward are trying to control all of those regions while also having discovered, in, in quotes, I use that word, discovered the new world and trying to export the laws for control over there as well. So the situation was pretty much over the top. Okay. Thank you. Um, could you elaborate now on, uh, you have mentioned this before, um, Sancho Panza's role as a representative of the illiterate contemporary populace? Okay. Um, Sancho is, throughout the novel, he's, he's the one who gives these practical uh, resolutions. So Sancho will use, um, he also uses old-style legal terminology. For the word homicide, he uses omicidios. And that word also had two different meanings by the time Cervantes was writing. So the fact that Sancho uses it is a commentary on his knowledge of the old law books. There's a point in the novel where Sancho says, I don't know anything about histories, and I've never read any histories, but I do know the laws. And he points out throughout when Don Quixote is um, transgressing the law, and to a certain extent, he'll say, oh, no, you can't put another penalty on that person because unless they commit another crime, you can't add a second penalty to one you already have put forward against them. And then throughout, Sancho is promised that he will eventually get to rule over his own insula. It's not really an island, but it's a, a holding, a territory. The the promise is it becomes kind of a running joke in the novel, but then in the second part, the 1615 uh, second part of the novel, there's a, there's a pair there are a pair of there's a pair of characters that are the duke and duchess, and they the duke actually gives Sancho an insula to be governor over, 
So Sancho goes to this place that is called the Insula Barataria. And Barataria, there are multiple possibilities behind the naming of the place. The Spanish word for cheap is barato, and so you can say, oh, he came by it cheaply. It's also known as a word that was used for fraudulent sales in the time frame. And I found a third possibility in the Labut and with the, the title for something that is still today used, although with a different meaning, baratarios. And that, in its original sense in Latin, was bribe-taking by judges. Now, Sancho is set up as governor-judge of Barataria. And he doesn't take any bribes, and as a matter of fact, he's one of the most upstanding governor judges that they've ever had. There had been, um, in 1595, there's a magistrate who publishes a manual for magistrates, and he tries to distinguish between two forms of bribe-taking, saying that coecho is bribery and barataria is, barateria is not really bribery, it's just uh, doing a favor or something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a fine-tuned distinction that doesn't really work. So, the way that we look at baratry today, that is the, the English term for it today, baratry, is vexatious lit litigation. And that is also an operative use in English, at least, in the time frame of Cervantes' novel. That fits also certain cases that Sancho decides. So one example of baratry used in the partidas, the siete partidas, that same old law code, is if you pretend to hide something in a bag and then you touch the bag as if you are signaling that you're hiding something of worth there. That's considered uh, trying to cheat someone else by making them think something that isn't really true. So one of Sancho's cases that he decides as governor comes down literally to that. One man comes and he complains that a second man has not returned to him monies that had been loaned. And the second man says, I did return them. And he, the, the Sancho says that he has to swear that he has returned them, so he has a cane that he's carrying, this man who says, I did return them, I did return them. He hands his cane off to the first man who had made the complaint. And then he says, I swear that I did return them, and you can take me at my word, I returned the monies. And then he takes his cane back from the first man. And the first man says, he never gave me back the money. I swear he never gave me back the money. I, he hasn't paid me back this money he owes me. And Sancho sees through the ruse, which is, this is a form of baratry. He breaks open the cane, and inside the cane is the money. So the, the, the specifics of the, the level of detail is surprising when you start unraveling it. And that's pretty much a prime example of Sancho's good decisions. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, could you talk uh, now about the connections between Don Quixote uh, and Philip II's inability to enforce the law? Okay, I think the the episode with the galley slaves again works in the sense of Philip. It's it, it's a very a very subtle critique of Philip II not being able to enforce the law. So all of these laws are on the books, and all of them are enforced, but to greater or lesser degree. And as it turns out, pretty much no one is obeying the law in the time frame. The complaints about it 
um, they're always tied into that there are too many laws. And if you read through the laws, you find, as I said before, these repetitions of, okay, we said this two years ago in this earlier pragmatic, and now we're repeating it again. So if you look at Don Quixote, he's not like Philip II in that he's trying to enforce literal law. He's trying to enforce the ideals of law. And it's the justice behind law. And I think they're more distinct than they are similar in that neither of them is able to realize what they set out to do. So Philip II realized a whole a whole slew of things in his lifetime. But enforcing the law in a uniform way was beyond him. He just did, he couldn't do that and I don't know that anyone would, could have would have been able to do that in the time frame given the situation. The the way Don Quixote goes out is to go behind it, to look at the ideals behind it. And the image of Philip II that was held in the in the time frame is not always quite positive. So there are for instance in in Cervantes' later novel The Persiles, he pretty much jumps over that time frame of Philip II's reign as if it didn't exist in history. There are, there are, there are subtle uh, digs at it. So the forcings is one, and that's a clear commentary to me where Cervantes says, through what his character says, the king is not able to uphold the law. He is allowing these forcings to take place, and he's not doing what his particular role is, and his particular role is to undo these forcings. And as it turns out, Philip III, after the publication of this first part of the novel, there, he, he did issue a proclamation that the, the laws about people going to the galleys were being enforced irregularly and unfairly in that people were being sent to the galleys before they had the time for an appeal. So it all ties into those two pieces. Now, I don't see Don Quixote as Philip II because Don Quixote is an idealist. And that doesn't, that they don't exactly tie together in that sense for me. Okay. Um, to conclude, I would love to know what you're working on now. Okay. Um, let's see. I have just finished uh, another book that is currently in press, and it's called, it, the title is Ficino in Spain. It's a study of the impact Italian philosopher Marsilio Ficino had on Spanish letters of the same time from the 15th through the early 17th century. It's uh, an Italian philosopher who for a long time his uh, impact and importance in Spanish letters was denied, but I've found multiple references to him, commentaries on his work, incorporation, including by Cervantes, of details from his works, et cetera, et cetera. And so that one is supposed to be coming out in the spring, this spring 2015. And then two more projects that I'm beginning work on, there are two further projects. One is titled tentatively from law to literature in Spain. So I want to go back chronologically from the time frame that I worked in uh, the book on Cervantes. I want to go back chronologically and go back to the first epic, the Cantar de Miocid, and another work that's from the next century called the Libro de Buen Amor. Both of those 
incorporate legal detail. So I want to look at what happens there with the legal detail and how it's incorporated and its use in the text that later we would call creative texts. Then I want to jump to the fifth, end of the 15th century because there's a, a canonical work from that time frame called the, um, the Celestina. And it is not only literally tied to legal practice, it has a lot in it as well. And within 50 years, there was another book written on it that commented it for its legal material. So I want to look at those two along with another that's called the Griseli Miravella from that time frame. And then I want to move forward, but only up to the last, say, like 1575, 1580, somewhere around there, to look at how the ideas on what law and literature were, the concept those who were writing these things had of what the two things were, what the two disciplines were. So I want to look at that. And then the second other planned project is called Early Modern Theorists. And that would be where I would go forward in time from what I did with Cervantes, looking at his environment and what they, again, what the creative artists, this is the golden age of Spanish literature. And I want to look at what, what they said about what they were doing as they were doing it, and then take that up to the 18th century when the debates on good versus beautiful letters, the French belletra and the, the Spanish were debating buenas versus bellas letras, and who had them in which nation had better beautiful letters and what happened along the way. So that's the the project's on route <laughs> in the planning. Yeah, you sound very busy. Um, we're gonna... <laughs> Probably too much, though, right? Yeah, we'll have to have you on the show a couple more times this year. <laughs> um, I appreciate very much you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And so did I. I appreciate it. <laughs> 